Amen. Have you ever felt like you've had a, a hurdle in your life that you couldn't overcome? Sometimes um, there are lots of things that can feel like those kinds of hurdles. They can be situations that we're facing that seem impossible. It could be a battle within ourselves. Bitterness can sometimes be like that. Um, there's a famous story of Winston Churchill who had this very contentious relationship with a woman named Lady Astor. And one time at a particular event, Lady Astor said to Winston Churchill, Sir, if I were your wife, I would put poison in your tea. And he said to her, Madam, if I were your husband, I'd drink it. (laughs) You know, sometimes, um, sometimes bitterness can get to the best of us. I'm going to share personally about a time when it got the best of me. Uh, Some of you know the story. Some of you don't know the story. But uh, we came here almost 17 years ago. And at that time, shortly after we arrived here, I was struggling deeply with bitterness in my heart and my life. And I kept confessing it to the Lord. I kept bringing it to him. Kept asking him to take it away, and it seemed like it, it, not only did I continue to struggle with it, but I continued to struggle with it more and more. I was able to kind of keep a lid on it at times, but it seemed as if um, that battle was a battle that I was losing continuously, and I began to have this hopeless feeling like I would always lose this battle. Have you ever been, like, been there in a place in your life, maybe where you're struggling with something, and you come to believe that I'm struggling with this now, I struggled with this yesterday. I struggled with it the day before. I struggled with it a month ago. I struggled with it a year ago. And I'm never, I'm never going to get past it. Well, that's how I felt when it came to bitterness. And then, and then one day, I was driving on the street right here uh, six months after we moved here, struggling with it. And uh, traffic got stopped right on Mayflower Street over here where the schools are. And If you ever drive through here in the mornings or in the afternoon, you know that lots of parents drop off their kids there. Often the cars back up into the road. The road gets stopped. And I remember sitting there one afternoon praying, Lord, whatever it takes, do whatever it is to take this bitterness away from me. That was my prayer. That was was an obstacle. That was a burden that I felt like I could not get past. And I asked God to do it, un- do it for, for his purpose, however he wished to do it. What we notice here in the text, we have this picture of Paul recognizing the kinds of obstacles that he faced in his life and his prayer for not only himself, but for the Thessalonian believers as a result. And um, the, the truth that I hope that we take from this message as we look at it together is this. We'll only live a life of meaning and fulfillment when we live it with the end in mind. We'll only live a life of meaning and fulfillment when we live it with the end in mind. Jack Higgins, who was, uh, or still is, uh, he's living still, he's a, a spy thriller novelist. He wrote one book that sold 50 million copies, The Eagle Has Landed. He was once asked, 
what he wished he would known as a boy that he knows now. And his answer was, was quite telling. He said this, when you get to the top, there's nothing there. That's the one thing he wished he knew as a boy that now he knew after reaching the pinnacle of success in his career. And so as we read these, this text together, the question that we need to ask ourselves is really, what is this life for? What am I living for? Where, where am I going to find my meaning, sense of meaning and fulfillment in the life that I live? Well, Paul calls us to live our lives always with the end in mind. And there are three characteristics that we find here of a person who lives with that perspective. Number one, when we live with the end always in view, we will live with a profound trust in God's providence. We will live with a profound trust in God's providence. And providence is is the idea that God orders everything that happens. Uh, God orders the whole universe from 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 the tiniest atom to the biggest constellation God is behind it all, and not only that, but he orders our lives. And, and Paul had this fundamental trust that, that this was the kind of God that he is, and, and it's born out of this, 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 this big understanding, this big overarching understanding of God that he had. We, we notice here right at the beginning that we see this, this, this prayer which starts with this Trinitarian focus. As Christians, we believe in one God, three persons, and we notice that Paul uh, speaks of God the Father and the Son, and he gives them uh, equality, each member of the Trinity equality. Notice he says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Now this statement where he shows the equality of the Father and the Son, this is, this is, a, this is a, a, a whole subject that we could spend an entire sermon on. We're not going to do that, but I I would like to just point your attention to one statement made by New Testament scholar Leon Morris. This is what he wrote. There could scarcely be a more impressive way of indicating the lordship of Christ and his oneness with the Father. There could not be a more impressive way than the way that Paul does it, the way he begins his prayer as we see Father and Son are co-equal. Well, what what does his big view of God lead him to understand? Well, there's a belief that, that it was ultimately God who was responsible for directing his way, directing his life. Do you, do you live your life with that reality? That, that behind your life, behind everything that happens, you have a God who directs that life. He directs every circumstance that you face, and he does it for your glory. Paul had that big view, but he was, he was facing uh, huge obstacles, um, the, the, this, this phrase here, direct our way to you, could be translated a little bit differently, and I like how the NIV does it. Uh, it, 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 does it, it. It says, clear the way. Clear the way. What Paul is asking is that God will clear the way. And why does, why does he ask for that? Well, it's because he wanted to go and be with the Thessalonian believers, but Satan had been putting obstacles in his way and he couldn't get there. He tried time and time again and now he'd thrown up his hands and he realized that there was nothing he could do to make it happen. And so he was asking God to make it possible so that he could go and and be with God's people. There there are a number of of, of reasons why this may have happened and we've mentioned this before. It could be be simply that when, when Jason... Jason was a a leader in the church. 
Paul went to the city with Silas. They preached the gospel. God changed hearts. When God changed hearts, this caused a, a ruckus in the city. People went crazy. And Paul and Silas barely escaped the city. And Jason had to post bond. And the thinking is, is that bond in those days, or maybe in this circumstance, rather than giving proof that you will show up for court on the appointed day, a bond was posted to prevent the person who, um, who the bond was posted for to return to the city. So it was kind of a guarantee that you wouldn't come back. And the thinking is, is that if Paul and Silas returned to Thessalonica, Jason would have to forfeit this money that he posted as, as bond and, if, and, it, and perhaps it was a lot of money and the church couldn't repay him. And as a result of that, Paul and Silas couldn't come back. Paul understood that there was this great obstacle that prevented them from going to the city. He saw that Satan was behind that great obstacle. But he has this prayer. And the reason why he brings up this prayer is because he believes that God can do anything. Now, my question for you this morning is, is do you believe God can do anything? Now, on an intellectual level, I believe that all of us believe that he can do anything. And by the way, um, some people will throw out questions like, well, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? Or um, can God um, make a married bachelor? Have you ever heard that one? Or can God make a square circle? So when we, when we say God can do anything, we're not playing language games like that. People play language games like that. God can't do anything that contradicts himself, right? God can't lie, Right? So there are certain things that God can't do, like lying. But God can do anything that is consistent with his will. And sometimes, even though we know that to be true intellectually, the farthest distance in the world is the 18 inches between our brain and our heart. Would you believe that? Sometimes we know something is true, God can do anything, but it's a hard, time, hard for us sometimes to believe that he can actually do it. So when Paul believed that God could remove the obstacles, what might he have been thinking about? Well, think about Paul in his life. Paul was a persecutor of the church. Paul hated Christians before he came to know Jesus. Paul hated Jesus. In fact, this is what he says about himself in Acts 22. He, um, he mentions in his testimony in Acts 22, he said, I persecuted the followers of this way, and by the way, the church used to be referred to, they would often in the first century call themselves the way because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, right? He is the one way to eternal life. There is no way to eternal life outside of Jesus. And Christians used to refer to them thems, themselves by this, but we can't since the 70s because some weird cult, uh, any of you remember the 70s, rose up during the 70s calling themselves away, so Christians don't call themselves that anymore. But he says, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. We get this picture of his story. We think about the story of Stephen. Stephen was, a, uh, was one of the early leaders of the church, and he made a speech that enraged the religious leaders. Among them was Paul, and Paul stood and guarded the coats of those who stoned Stephen to death. He was there provingly as, as this Christian leader was killed. Yet when he looked back at his life, when he looked at the hatred that he had for Jesus, and he looks, looked at the hatred that he had for Christians, what does he recognize? That God changed his heart. How does God change the heart of somebody who hates someone so much? 
Just, just think about that for a moment. He hated Christians with all of his heart. And now he became a man who wanted to give his life for Christ and the fellowship of believers. How does that happen? He got a new heart. And God, when he gave him that new heart, God did the impossible. And so in this circumstance, Paul believed that God could do the impossible and God could get rid of the barriers that separated him from these believers just like he took away that barrier of his heart. And I, and I hope that when, when we're struggling with the same kind of things in our own lives, we might think back on ourselves, recognizing our propensity to sin, our propensity to rebellion, uh, our propensity to be selfish and to recognize how God changed our hearts. He did the impossible in us. And if God did the impossible in us, he can do the impossible in our situation. All of our situations that we're struggling with, all of these impossible things are unique to us. His situation was unique to him and ours are unique to us and what we're going through. Just like I struggled with this bitterness that I thought that would never end in my life, perhaps you're struggling with something else. Maybe you're struggling with lust. Maybe you, you, have this, you, have this, you have this deep battle with lust and you think that it will never end. I want you to know that God can do the impossible. Maybe you have a, a, a battle at work with somebody in your life and you just think it's going to go on and on and on. Maybe, maybe you, have, you struggle with bitterness like me. Who knows what it might be? We serve a God who can do the impossible. And the person... The person who looks at their life always with the end in mind is a person who, who trusts, will trust in the providence of God, just like we see in, in Paul's life. The second thing we notice is this. For those who, who always live with the end in mind, there will be a genuine love for people that we wouldn't otherwise like. Now, it's easy to, like, to love people we like, isn't it? Anybody can do that. But what God calls us to do is to love people that we don't necessarily like. And the only way to do this is if God works supernaturally in our lives, and that's why Paul is praying for this, because he's calling for God's supernatural, divine intervention in their life so that they can be reflective of Jesus in this way. Look at verse 12, and it says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Now, what does this mean when Paul asks the Lord to cause them to increase and abound in love for one another? Well, this phrase, increase and abound, refers to an overflowing love that never ceases to grow. Why is that? I mean, think about this church. This church was a healthy church. This church is a church that mimicked Paul and became a pattern for the other churches and um, it was actually, there were people that resembled the healthy church that was in Judea. The, these people uh, had, had been growing like wildfire, and, and Paul is now saying that he wants them to continue to grow in their love for one another. Well, why is that? Well, the answer is simple to that. There's always room to grow in the Christian life, and particularly in the area of love. Remember what Jesus said. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, true love, true love always flows from a love for God. Uh, it it comes, from, comes from a heart that has been changed by God. It always begins there. The, the deeper we grow in our fellowship with God, the greater our capacity to love other people grows. 
So, so that's, the, that's the fountain, that's the foundation. But we, we, never, we never come to a place where we've kind of reached our peak when it comes to loving each other. We've, we've never come to a place where we can say, well, I can go this far and no further. Remember that second part of the, the statement, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, a lot of people, especially people in the world, they hear that phrase and they say, oh, I'm pretty good. I love my neighbor as myself. I do nice things for my neighbor. I'm nice to my neighbor. I'm cordial to my neighbor. But that is not how Jesus wants us to understand that statement. Jesus wants us to understand that what he's asking of us is impossible for us to do in our own strength, to love our neighbor as ourself. If we love our neighbor as ourself, it means that we think about our neighbor as much as we think about ourselves. It means that we care for our neighbor as much as we care for ourselves. How many of us can, can sit here and say that we spend as much time thinking about our neighbor's needs as we think about our own needs? Can actually say that we fret over our neighbor's issues as much as we fret over our own issues? That we, that we spend as much uh, of our resources taking care of our neighbors as we do on ourselves. In fact, when Jesus calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves, it is a profound statement of our inability to do that. So, so how is it that we are, we are able to love that way? Well, number one, we need to recognize that we never, ever will reach the apex of our love, but we need to continue to grow in that area for other people. That we, we need to be careful not to justify ourselves and say that, oh, well, I've done enough. No, no, we need to be continually growing in this way and loving those around us as it will be a picture of God's love for us. It will be a picture of his divine and supernatural work within our hearts. You know, um, within, within uh, the church, conflict is unfortunately part and parcel. In fact, the apostles didn't even escape that. Well, um, there was once a pastor and an organist who didn't get along. And so he, um, he preached a sermon on the need to change. And when he was done with his sermon, the organist played, I shall not be moved. <laughs> and then um, after a sermon on gossip, the organist sat down and played, I love to tell the story. <laughs> then once uh, and for all, the pastor had enough of it, and he stood up before the church, and he said that he, it was time for him to submit his resignation. He said Jesus had called him there, and Jesus had now called him away. And then the organist sat down and played, what a friend we have in Jesus. <laughs> Conflict, unfortunately, has been part of the church since the beginning. We see this in the life of the Apostle Paul in particular. If you read in the book of Galatians, you'll see he had a falling out with the Apostle Peter. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see that he had a falling out with a young man named John Mark. But they worked through it. And... Um, in 2 Peter 3.16, the Apostle Peter refers to Paul as our beloved brother Paul. And then you might remember in 2 Timothy when Paul was in his last days, when he was, when he was dying, when he knew he was going to die at the hands of the Roman authorities, I should say, 
he asked for John Mark to be sent to him because he had proven himself faithful. See, that's, that's one of the things that we have to understand is, 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 is part and parcel in the life of the church because we're people and we're, we're prone to do that. But, but, but God expands our hearts and our love for each other so that we can embrace each other despite any differences that we might have. And so he prays that God will cause their love to increase and abound for one another. Not only that, though, he's not just referring to this love in increasing and abounding, abounding for people in the church, but, but actually people outside of the church, which is, which is a pretty huge statement given the fact that these were Christians undergoing persecution. Now, it's, it's one thing to love those who are like us. It's another thing to love those who aren't like us and hate us. In fact, we, we live in a world like that. We live in a world, we live in a hateful age. I can't put it any other way. You, you turn on the news and you see the, you see the fighting going on in the Middle East. Or um, you hear, you hear um, uh, people today even who have embraced philosophies like, like Marxism, where at the very base of Marxism is, is, is class warfare. And, and, the, and the very idea of Marxism is to divide and to conquer. And so we have people divided along all kinds of different lines, whether they be economic lines, uh, social lines, ethnic lines, you name it. People are being divided every which way and and turned at one another's throats. You You can see why Marxism is so opposed to the church because in the church we're taught to love each other and it doesn't matter what our background is. It doesn't matter what our color is. It doesn't matter any of those things. Those things are irrelevant to the whole discussion. What matters is is where our heart is. And we, we see that in the gospel. The gospel is so different than the world. The world would, would, would tear everyone and everything apart, but the gospel is, is this, this message of God's reconciling love to, to, the, to the Father through the work of the Son, and as an extension of that, we, we love and we care for each other. So we live in this dark age, we live in this hateful age, and now what is he calling the believers to do? Even those who hate them, like Paul was one of them, he calls them to have an ever-increasing love for people who dislike them simply because they love Jesus. That's a pretty astounding statement, isn't it? But the Lord says just as much. Notice in uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 32 to 36, Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. So so we can be like him when we love people like that. Be merciful, then he says, even as your father is merciful. So how do we do that? How do we love difficult people? Maybe people that we wouldn't naturally get along with, maybe even within the body. 
or love people who don't like us simply because of our faith on the outside or some other reason, or maybe it's, maybe it's just a, a, a cranky boss that we have to deal with, or maybe it's a, it's a really unkind teacher or uh, some other thing that we're dealing with. How do we love those people the way Jesus wants us to love them in increasing measure? How is that possible? It requires divine intervention. And that's why Paul is praying for that. Only God can do that. And it's only when we live our lives with an eye on the end that we can realize the moment and live the kind of life that God has called us to live. Imagine, imagine how the church of Jesus Christ would shine into an age like the one that we're living if we live the way that God is calling us to live. And number, number three, the third mark of someone who has his or her mind always fixed on the end is a confidence that he will prepare us for the day when we see him. Notice verse 13. He says this, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Here we notice that uh, that, that Paul is asking that, that God would establish their hearts, would, would give them a courage to, to stand for, for him in this very difficult time, in this very difficult age. And the same is true for us. That we would, that we would, that we would stand blameless. That means to be not condemned. And in holiness, that means to be set apart from God, to our characters to be molded to the character of Christ before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Now, I um, just want to make a quick statement about um, what all his saints is a reference to. It could be a reference, some scholars think, to believers when the Lord returns. In fact, we, we notice in 1 Thessalonians 4, 14, that believers will be with the Lord when he returns. It could be a reference to the hosts of heaven, the angels, because we notice in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, that the angels will accompany the Lord when he returns, or my guess is that it's both. And we get this marvelous image. We have this marvelous picture of, of the Lord's return. And, and, and Paul wants these believers to think about their lives in light of the fact that one day that Jesus will return bodily. One day the trumpet shall descend, sound and, and the Lord shall descend and we shall see him. And one day we will give an account of our lives before him. And the question that we have for ourselves to think about today is, when I do see him, what kind of life do I want to be living at that time? Now, only Jesus has the power to make us blameless and holy. Only Jesus has the power to do that. We are thankful that through a relationship with him that, uh, that we can experience that. In fact, we, we notice this in Jude 24 and 25. It says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forevermore. Amen. You see, Jesus has the power to make us stand before him blameless. Well, how do we experience that? How do we experience that new heart, that new life that we have been talking about today? Well, we experience it through faith in what Christ has done for us on the cross. 
We come to him and we turn away from our sin and we place our faith in Jesus. We believe that he died on the cross for us and that he rose, he rose again from the dead. And when we enter into that union with him, he places his Holy Spirit in our life and his Holy Spirit then convicts us and calls us to live a Christ-like and holy life. It all begins with that step of faith. He washes us clean. He makes us new. He declares us righteous. He makes us holy. What would it look like if we lived our lives every day like it was our last? There was a famous theologian here from Massachusetts. His name was Jonathan Edwards. He pastored churches in Northampton and Stockbridge. And he is considered to be the greatest mind. Some people consider him to be the greatest mind to ever be born on this continent. He was born in 1703. And he endeavored as a young man to live his whole life for Christ. And when he was in his late teen years, he wrote what were called the 70 um, resolutions. And um, here are a number of those resolutions that he wrote, most of them when he was about 19. And I'd like to um, read some of these for you so that it can show what a 19-year-old, what can happen in the life of a 19-year-old who decides that he wants to live every day like it's his last day. In the ever-present realization that one day he will see Christ face to face. Here's the first, or here's the seventh resolution. Resolved. And by the way, he would read these every week. He would go over these every week, the 70 resolutions. Resolved. Never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Imagine living your whole life that way. Just think about how different it might be. Or resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Resolved, I will act so as I think I shall judge would have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. And then I think, is this the last one or is there one more? One more, okay. 52, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again, resolve that I will live so as I can think I shall wish I had done supposing I lived to old age. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever gone back over the course of your life and said to yourself, if I could do it all over again, I would live in a different way? Well, no matter where we are in the course of our life, today can be that day. Today can be that new beginning. And finally, the last one, resolve to endeavor to do my utmost, to act as I think I should do if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and hell torments. Again, just consider that. Think about how different our lives would be if we always lived with the end in mind. This is how Paul is praying that they will live their lives. I'd like to make three applications from this. Three, three applications from this. Number one, number one, three things to remember. God's supernatural power is, on, is put on display when we trust him with the things that we cannot control. God's supernatural power is put on display when we trust him with the things that we cannot control. Now, how many of you would admit to being a control freak? 
In the last service, we only had like two. Um, this one, we have maybe a couple more. Well, rather than making you um, raise your hand, um, we'll let you do your own self-evaluation. We have, we have uh, five things that if, if you agree with these statements, it could be that you're a control freak. Um, number one, you might be a control freak if you can relate to any of the following. Number one, maybe I, would need to be, maybe I wouldn't need to be such a control freak if you just do as I say when I say it. Anybody can relate to that? Or um, number two, you think I'm OCD? Well, I think you're a slacker who just can't do things right. You ever, you ever think like that? You might be a control freak. My world would be so much better if everyone did what I said and let me make all of the decisions. Four, I adore spontaneity so long as it is meticulously planned. And then five, I could stop being a control freak if other people stop messing things up. Well, I think that there's a lot of us that could relate to this. There is this desire within us to control our world, but there are certain things that we cannot control. What do we do with that? What do we do with those things that we can't control? Jesus said, come to me all who are weary, who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to him. Come to him. And he'll carry you through. There are certain things in our lives that we can't control. There are certain things in our lives that we can't overcome. But we know that we have a Savior who cares for us and loves us, who is in control of all things, and as a consequence to that, promises to be the healing bomb that we, we need when we go through times of trouble. Number two, God's supernatural power is on display in us when we love the unlovable. Unlovable. God's supernatural power is on display in us when we love the unlovable. We read this again, verse 12, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. One of the reasons why the, the church grew so quickly in the first century was because it was a place for outcasts. The church was mainly made up of slaves and women. Why slaves and women? Because slaves were on the edge of the social uh, framework. Nobody cared about slaves. Nobody loved slaves. And women were treated as second-class citizens. But that's not the way that it was in the body of Christ, that slaves and women were treated with dignity. And as a result of it, the, the church grew, and the church was a hospital for the sick. It wasn't a, it wasn't a place for the self-righteous to come and, and, str and strut around like... Um, like, uh, oh, what's the, what are those birds that strut around? Peacocks, yeah. I say that all the time at home, and my kids make fun of me, and then when I really need to recall it, I lose it. But, 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 but that's not the place of the church. We're not, we're not self-righteous peacocks. We're, we're, we're a place that's for the sick, those who, who need a place to go, who, who need people who will love them unconditionally. That's what God calls us to do. And when we love this way, we put, God's, we put God's power on display. And finally, the third one is this. God's supernatural power is on display when we live every day as if it is our last. 
And so I'd like to finish for you that story that I began telling at the beginning. And this is what, this is what I experienced in my life. So I had this struggle with bitterness. And I felt as if, I felt as if I was never going to get past it. I felt as if I was going to struggle with it forever. And it was eating me alive. It was affecting my relationships. Yes, in certain contexts, I could kind of keep it under the surface, but I could see I was beginning to develop a temper. And I could see that I was easily frustrated, and I could see that I could quickly take offense. As the Proverbs say, it's to a person's glory to overlook an offense. Well, I couldn't do it. And so um, I struggled, and that day, driving down the street, right over by Mayflower Avenue, I said, Lord, do whatever it takes to take this away from me. And I'll just share with you my experience. A week later, I started a pain in my left leg, and that pain became worse and worse and worse. And finally, um, I began to feel very, very sick. To make a long story short, I ended up in the hospital with a massive blood clot in my left leg, with blood clots in my lungs. I was hours away from suffocating to death. And by God's grace and his intervention and the medical people, they finally, after a few days, patched me up and sent me home. But they said, if you have any chest pain, you have to get in right away or else it could be fatal. So then one night, late one night, a few days after I went home, all of a sudden I started having sharp chest pains and I knew this could be trouble. And so immediately we knew what we had to do. I had to make my way to the hospital. But before going, I realized I had to say goodbye because this could have been the last time I saw my children and my wife on this side of heaven. And so I went one by one into my children's rooms. This was late in the night. They were sleeping. And I took each one as they were sleeping into my arms. I had four at that time, and they're very little. And I prayed for them and kissed them, cried over them one at a time, and then began to make my journey to the hospital. As I was on my way, all of a sudden, the reality, and I don't know if you've been, if you've had brushes with death. I would guarantee probably just about everybody here who's over 30 <laughs> has probably had a brush with death. You, you know what I'm talking about. And all of a sudden, it began to impress upon me at that moment that in a few minutes or a few hours, I might be standing in the presence of the Lord. And then all of a sudden it hit me, oh God, I don't want to come before you. I don't want to bring with me a heart of bitterness. And I can't tell you how he did it. But in that moment, it was like he performed divine surgery on my heart. And he took that bitterness away. And I've never been the same since. I don't know if you're struggling with something like that. Some, some sin that is besetting you, that you think that there is no hope. I want you to know that there's hope. There's a God in heaven who, 
who has the power to take that away from us in a blink of an eye in an instant. But it was only when I came to realize. Now, now intellectually I knew. I've known since I was a little kid that one day I would stand before the Lord and I would give an account for my life. I've always known that. But that in that instant, I didn't just know it in my mind. I knew it existentially. And I realized what a God he is and his awe and his power and his glory and his purity. And I felt as if I was in the very presence of God and, and, and perhaps the most, most powerful way I've ever experienced in my life in that moment. And it was gone in a blink of an eye. I realized I did not want to stand before God in that way. But could you imagine if all of us lived that way, not in those moments when we feel as if we are on the verge of death, but that we live that way all of our days? Can you imagine how different our lives would be as a result if we lived as Christians with the pure recognition that today I might be in the presence of God, and if I'm going to be in the presence of God today, what kind of life do I want to be living now before I see him? Maybe there's someone here who's never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you haven't thought much about the fact that one day we will give an account. If you are a follower of Jesus, the beauty is is that you have passed through the judgment. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for your sins. And we we will never face his wrath. But if we haven't placed our faith and trust in Jesus, if we haven't believed on him as our substitute, we will face his wrath. But you can come to him. You can trust him. He will take away your sin. He will give you new life. He will take away your shame. He will fill you with his presence. And in him, you will experience a joy that this world could never offer, a peace in the midst of your trials and and heartache and hardship and the chaos that's around you. And life eternal. Have you experienced that? Have you come to know him? Oh, Christian, are you struggling with something in your heart and your life? Go to him. He'll hear you. Bring your concerns. Bring your struggles to him, for he can make a way. Let's pray.